My favorite line from Ken Burns' baseball about him was uh, he hired a guy to open his mail and throw away everything except checks and letters from broads. (laughs) (laughs) History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to frankly, I want to know. Hi. Welcome to Hilf History. I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. <laughs> and the Hilf up to bat is baseball. With my guest, comedy writer and baseball enthusiast, Joe Dungan. Now, like so many of the fuckable history subjects that my guests bring me to research, baseball has such a depth of jaw-dropping events and individuals that there is no way one episode, an entire podcast for that matter, could cover them all. So if, after you've listened, you find yourself, girl, hungry for even more from the annals of baseball history, go to our Instagram, at Hilf Podcast. Have I watched the new League of Their Own series on Amazon, for example? Yes, and I love it. You can go there to hear my review. But first, right now, join me and the velvet-voiced Joe Dungan as we go back to the origins of the game. Hear about when and where the very first baseball game was played. What happened to the real Shoeless Joe Jackson? All about Babe Ruth's insatiable appetite for sex and that time Jackie Robinson was drafted for World War II. I know, we're really about to knock it out of the park. But let's not be too hasty. All right, like any good hill thing, we must start on first base. delighted that you are here. Thank you. Joe Dungan. I'm so glad that you've joined me and we don't know each other. No. So I had to look you up and I know that you are a comedian. Sometimes. You are an event host. When I can get the work, yes. <laughs> and you are a comedy writer. I consider myself all of those things and more. Mm. Getting people to pay me for it is another story. People ask me what I do for a living. I'm like, this week? I mean, what I, you know. Sure, it's a quilt. It's a tapestry. We're weaving together. Oh, mine's a pretty threadbare sheet, but thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's the coolest job you've ever had? Ooh, good question. I'll tell you what I loved when I was a kid. When I was a teenager, I was taking tickets for UCLA basketball games. Ooh. And I worked the door where the players came in. I knew knew Reggie Miller when he was a sophomore at UCLA. That's cool. How did you get that job? It's a guy I knew. He was a floor usher, and he hired. He got me in, and I was 16 when I started doing that. Yeah, yeah that's I, a cool job. Yeah, I, and celebrities would walk in sometimes, and I was yeah, I was on the floor, you know, nationally televised games once in a while because UCLA was a badass basketball team. Fun. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Didn't... And your friends were like, oh. Some of them, yeah. Most of them didn't care, but <laughs> I thought that was just cool being there. You know, yeah. it's a cool atmosphere. You know, Joe, this is another cool thing about you is not only did we not know each other prior to this, but you hit me up. You, yes, were like, I did. you were like, Miss Brody, I want to be hilfed. Miss Brody. <laughs> you said, I, I think your podcast is great. I'd love to be on it. And baseball is my subject. Why? Well, I probably know more about that than any other kind of history, uh-huh. for one thing. It's also a, a unique sliver. It's not like they talk about it in history class. And I mean, everyone talks about the Civil War and the Crusades and all that stuff. No mm-hmm. one talks about, you know. Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson sure. and all that stuff. So. Yeah, I think it's a damn shame. I think it's a damn shame. I do love baseball. I think because I'm from the Midwest and baseball is spring. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know. Oh, but well, you're from Minnesota, right? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, winter is just a nightmare. It's so miserable. And baseball accompanies forever. baseball accompanies warmer weather. And not only that, if your head is in the game, it you can be fascinated for three consecutive hours. It can give you whatever you're looking yeah. for. Totally. If you're into stats and mm-hmm. math and, and technology. Oh, yeah. That's another thing. I'm a math nerd, too. Oh, it's, see? Yeah. I, Moneyball was another fascinating mm-hmm. sliver of history that changed baseball. I'm not sure for the better, but change baseball for sure. For sure. And the number of times you hear baseball or missing baseball as an example of missing what's good in life, right? Somebody's bitching about their job, this goddamn job, you know, I never had a chance to go to the baseball games. And and you know what that means. It's not just you didn't get a chance to go to games. You missed an important part of your child's life because you know how important baseball is to your kid and that big game. And to miss baseball is, a, is like a capital crime or to take baseball from someone is you know, a truly offensive thing to do. And when you talked about the history of America, if I were teaching history class uh, in the history of America, I would teach the history of baseball. (laughs) But just at the end of the class, I'd give them a quiz about American history and they'd fucking ace it. And they wouldn't know why. Because you can't separate baseball from American history. Oh, there's definitely overlap. It's it's overlap. These two have held hands from from the very beginning. I mean, it's just, it's such a fascinating story. And I'm so grateful to you, Joe Duncan, for bringing me this subject because I had an absolute blast hilfing this stuff. Let me tell you about my sources. Let me tell you about where I went to get a lot of this stuff. Sure. I went to Ken Burns baseball documentary, PBS, Mm -hmm. 1994. This is, this is 19 hours of Ken Burns doing his thing with the sound and the slow and the pictures. And oh my God, it was an absolute delight. Yeah. Wonderful. If you really like feel like this is just the tip and you want the whole thing, jump on in. Yeah. And, and by the way, you can go support PBS anyway. Just yeah, that too. Um, and then just countless uh, articles, essays, portraits, and profiles, and some of the people and events that I'm going to talk about. It is an extensively written about topic. So after all of this, we consumed all this stuff. Here's my plan for the hilfing of baseball with you, Joe Duncan. Yes. Um, I'm going to start with the origin of baseball. Mm-hmm. The first time the word baseball was whispered on American soil and when we got into it. And I'm going to sort of lily pad through some of the most interesting hilfs along the way, the individuals that curled my toes the most, which are Shoeless Joe Jackson, oh, yeah. Babe Ruth, yep. and Jackie Robinson. Yeah. And so, are you ready to hilf? I'm ready to hilf. <laughs> <laughs> no dinner, no dancing. No We're just going to go straight to the hilfing. Gave All this right. poor guy some, some carbonated water and was like, burgle up. <laughs> the legend of the the birth of baseball is from 1849 in Cooperstown. And Cooperstown is uh, right 150-ish miles northwest of New York City. And there's a guy named Abner Doubleday. Do you know who yeah, this guy yeah. is? Yeah, he was a, a Civil War general. He was a decorated general, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, as the story goes... I think some historian made it up decades later. Mm-hmm. He actually didn't know anything about the game, yeah. but it just made good copy. It did. Well, Abner Doubleday, they say in, this, in the legend, and of course, I mean, the name sounds great. Abner Doubleday, mm-hmm. who doesn't write a, write a song about Abner right. Doubleday, that they, these guys are playing this game called town ball and that they're, they're playing and it's kind of like stick ball and, and cricket and they're fucking up and they're, everybody's getting hit. Nobody agrees on what to do. They're running in into each other and every hit is fair and it's chaos. Yeah. Until Abner Doubleday sits down with a pen and paper, goddammit, and writes down the rules <laughs> to a game called baseball. And, um, and then he goes on to be the hero of Gettysburg. And as Joe said, years after he's dead, somebody says, you know, he invented baseball. And everyone goes, that sounds great. But there's a reason why we wanted the story of Abner Doubleday to be true. And it's because the real story of the origin of baseball doesn't fit with the reason we've loved baseball sense. 
the real origin of baseball in America started in a very, very prestigious, very elite and very exclusive gentleman's club in New York City called the Knickerbocker Club. And it remains one of the most exclusive, prestigious and difficult to access gentlemen's clubs in the entire world. This club in New York City was excluded membership to like only a few families from that were Dutch and British. I mean, the Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller was reluctantly admitted into the Knickerbocker Club after like his third application. And it wasn't until the third generation that a Rockefeller got into like the inner sanctum. Uh, how, of the aristocratic, Club. how aristocratic can he be? We're like, well, Rockefeller's G. We yeah, don't know. Because he's new money. Oh. I mean, these guys, okay. Oh, and so money. there's a guy in the Knickerbocker Club named Alexander Joy Cartwright mm -hmm. who just fucking loves baseball. This game that the kids are playing that already is called baseball and he loves it. Whether or not he, like other rich, prestigious guys, thought, saw money to be made and sort of establishing this game as something that could be controlled and regulated and whatever is anybody's guess. But this guy comes up with the DNA, the beating heart, and the real skeletal structure of baseball. Here's what he does. He, he sits down um, and he gets some of the rules. For example, the infield is a diamond shape. Runners are now tagged out or thrown out. You don't just throw the ball yeah, out. Yeah, you mentioned that's kind of, it's kind of barbaric. <laughs> Pretty just significant. smack a guy in the head with a ball. No, no, no. No, Come please on. no. And, and not at the Knickerbocker Club. Um, and three missed swings is an out um, that where the foul lines are. This game that Alexander Joy Cartwright sketches out is very unique to rounders and cricket, and it's their own game, and they love it, and they want to play around New York, but already they've broken too many windows. Yeah, it's too big for a street. It's too. I'm a mom, okay? <laughs> I know what happens to you when you see somebody with a ball and a stick in the house start to think of a game. You're like, get out of here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Take whatever it is you're thinking, you're going to go to New Jersey, yeah. right? Which is exactly what they yes, did. Yes, they went to Jersey, didn't they? They went to Elysian Fields in Hoboken, <laughs> and, and the Knickerbocker Club explained the rules of baseball to an existing cricket club challenged them to a game, and they lost 23 to 1. <laughs> this cricket team just smoked the Knickerbockers. Um, but what really won that day is baseball. I mean, it was a cannon. It, it, it burst out upon New York and sent shards of baseball into everybody's heart. Within five years, you couldn't walk a block without hearing the crack of a bat in the city of New York. It was everywhere, and everyone's playing, Joe. Teachers are playing teachers. Nurses are playing nurses. The pipe fitters, the technicians, the undertakers. Everybody's got a baseball team, and they challenge you. And we start to come up with more sort of structure. Nine people on a team. The bases are 90 feet apart, right? And everyone, and it, and it is just a wildfire. Why do you suppose it caught on at that time? I think there's a lot of new stuff that's happening, right? Right about this time. What, no, what, we're establishing. What, what decade are we talking? This is about 1846, June 19th, 1846. Oh, that's right. That's the very first is the very first game. Is the very first game between the Knickerbocker Club and this cricket club. And by 1852, you could go and get a bat at most stores. Like there's people that are making money making bats. There's people that are making money making balls. There's not an official thing yet, but it's a bit, it's starting a budding business. And because these like corporate, not really corporations, but um, industries are playing each other, that spark of competition relating to capitalism is already there. So mm. like who's better, who's who? this mechanic's shop or this mechanic's shop, you can't say who's the better mechanic, but we can draw a line and say who's the better baseball player, <laughs> baseball player you know? Mm -hmm. So everyone in America is playing. It's fantastic. And then the Civil War starts. 
Oops. Oops. And we continue to have everybody playing baseball. Both sides of the Civil War have their units playing baseball wherever and whenever they can. In the Ken Burns documentary, as he does, it's just slow motion pan of the Civil War trappings you're used to. Bunch of dirty ass, sad looking, toothless guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Laying in a field with some hat. And they're holding baseball bats, right? And it's God well, bless them. Well, yeah, because also, you know, Trench warfare was just so boring. I mean, you think of war as hell, but most of it was boring. There's yeah. not a lot to do. No. So sure, let's line up and pick teams and let's get going. So that that would make sense. Sure, absolutely. Camaraderie. What else mm -hmm. are you going to do? It's not. It's not like you need a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it also really solidified the game because after the war was over, these units of soldiers have been playing together for the last few years, and a lot of these units were were. Um, delineated by geography anyway. So once they come home, you just, this unit versus that unit will come to you, you come to us, and baseball continues to travel and become more popular and everybody's having a fantastic time. 1876, give or take 10-ish years after the Civil War is over, we've got a professional baseball league. You know? That was the beginning of the National League, wasn't it? Exactly. But right before that, in 1871, they had already established the Professional Baseball Players League. So you can imagine, if everyone's making this up, right? We're all the first ones doing this, and there's no organization. And you've got some players that are really good and really, quote-unquote, valuable. We want you to play on our team. How do we get you to come over and play on our team? We offer you shit, including money, right? Maybe we even hire you to work in our stores. You can work on, our, you know, so that you can work on our company and then be on our company team. Mm -hmm. I mean, this kind of stuff is already happening. And so the players are the first ones to set up a league, the Professional Baseball Players League. And by 1876, the owners and the managers are like, no, the players do not get to decide <laughs> how this is going to go forward. And one of the first things that they do when these owners and managers get together in 1876 and create the National League is set boundaries on players, significant boundaries. One is on their behavior. They can't drink on or off the field. No games on Sundays. That's no right. No cursing. Isn't that, isn't that what gave rise to the American League, which was a lot looser with the rules? Exactly right. Yeah. Well, actually, the first response was the Brotherhood because the players rejected it because the big needle, like the huge punch in the jaw with this National League to the players was the reserve clause. Oh, that's so, a huge piece of, that overlaps labor history in this It really, too. exactly oh, yeah. right. So the reserve clause is introduced in this 1876 meeting with the owners and managers, and it's the big thing that pisses the players off, because what it says is, basically, <laughs> you players have no more control and no more power over how much you make or where you go after you've signed your contract with me. So the first, the best five players on every team are reserved for that team. They have no choice. They cannot go to another team, even if they offer, they want to, and even if the other team wants them. If another team wants to hire one of my top five reserved players, they make an offer to me, the owner. And it is up to me, the owner, if I buy or sell that player. And I make the profit. <laughs> Obviously, the players are looking at this and are like, I see. So I don't make any more money and I have no choice. Why would this be good to me? On the other hand, a lot of guys are like, this is the best possible job I'm ever going to have. My alternative to this was working in whatever factory I came from. You, for another year. For one year. That's exactly. the thing. No long-term contracts because no. it's only one year at a time. Yeah, and the owners can just can you whenever they want. So it's yeah. not real. How much security do you really have? None. And so a bunch of players, including a bunch of star players, organize their own league. 
and they called it the Brotherhood, and it did really well for a while. And then the National League literally used words like, we're going to war, there will be no survivors. Like, they squelched that league fast. The American League did come up, that sort of rose out of the Midwest, and instead of competing with the American League, they saw this is a useful, useful competition, and ultimately their competition at the end of the year is the World Series. Yeah, yeah. We know how that worked out. But the, the response from the players right away was resentment, and the line between owners and players was drawn and never really erased. And in 1877, one year after this is set up, they have their first cheating scandal. Oh, was it that early? It was Jim Devlin. Yes, I remember that name. Yes. Yeah, 1877. He's on a team called the Louisville Grays. They suspiciously lose to the Boston Red Caps. And there's an investigation. They find out they took a bunch of money to, from gamblers to throw the game. And the owners and managers realize right away that that is a huge threat to baseball. There will be no baseball if people don't believe their players are trying to win. <laughs> um, but that's not the scandal. Right. Oh, no. Because the scandal comes uh, a few years later with our friend, our first Hilf, Shoeless Joe. Shoeless Joe, Joe yeah. You know, when, it's it's interesting because these guys, you know, there was no, keep in mind, there was no disability insurance. There no. was no workman's comp. No. You were as replaceable as a as a flat tire. Sure. You were, no, we can't, you can't play anymore, goodbye. You're yeah. just, you're back to the coal mines or wherever sure. you came from. But that, and which, which is egregious and exactly what they expected. There was no job. There was no other job that was offering anything like that. It wasn't like, if you weren't a baseball player, you'd have all of this protection in the coal mine. You know, they were no. just like, yeah, yeah, this is how it works, except here it's great because I don't have to get down into a coal cart and women want to fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> do, do you think, do you think guys had women chasing them even back then yes. playing baseball? Oh, really? Oh, come on. They're wearing a uniform. They make a bunch of money. Everybody wants to know them. I guess, but they weren't famous. There was no radio. There was no, you know. There, but there, but there was because the fame then is word of mouth. That's one of the reasons why Shoeless Joe Jackson actually they think became so famous was because it's whispered. Mm, you know, it's okay. that have you heard? Have you heard? And there's some, and there's some newspapers are publishing scores of certain games. Um, when did you first hear about the man Shoeless Joe Jackson? Oh, probably as a kid. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly when. I just know he was the sad case who, I, I think he's most tragic because he was probably the best player on that team. Mm, he and may have been one of the best players of all time. Even yeah. some of his stats still hold up. I first heard about Shoes. I think a lot of people heard of my generation heard the same, which is the movie, yeah. Field of Dreams, mm -hmm. which was based on a book called Shoeless Joe. He got suspended from baseball for allegedly participating in the gambling of the 1919 World Series and how tragic and sad it was. You used the word sad right away. It's like you can't separate this story from just heartbreak. No, it is sad because he didn't, I don't think he the, the, what I've gathered from reading about it is that he didn't know what he was doing. Most people agree with you. He wasn't very bright. He no. just went along, go along to get along kind of thing. And yeah. he, if he had known he was ruining his reputation and never play again, he wouldn't have, I don't think he would have participated. No, in Joe, I, com I completely agree with you. And a lot of people do. And it makes sense because here, now for, for context, Shoeless Joe Jackson comes around about 30 years after the reserve clause and the National League has been established. So baseball is now a much more established thing. There are stadiums are being built. People are taking money, not huge stadiums like we know them now, stands, I guess is the more appropriate term, but there's money to be made. To, if I buy a piece of property and build stands, I will make a huge profit hosting baseball games. Um, baseball teams would get together and just travel around and challenge local teams to a game and then pass the hat. Mm -hmm. For the for whoever wanted to watch him play, uh, to pitch it, it was it was sort of akin to like a carnival or a circus in that in that sense, and um, and Shoeless Joe Jackson is born poor uh, to sharecroppers in South Carolina, and at the age of six, Joe he goes to work in a in a textile factory. Yeah, this that's... is part of the reason why he's completely illiterate, and he's at thirteen 
He's drafted for the Textile Mills baseball team because, as I said, everybody's playing fucking baseball. And if you can play at that age, you must be yeah. really pretty good. And they had to ask his mom's permission, and I don't know how they knew he was that good, but she was like, sure, he can play baseball. And he made a little extra money. He was making money playing baseball right away and good. And I cannot emphasize enough, you guys, for you to know why Shoeless Joe's story is so sad, you have to know how fucking good he was. He, and the shoeless Joe thing is in part because he really was, he was so poor. He barely, he was very unaccustomed to wearing new shoes and new cleats are particularly tough. And after they started hurting his feet, he just took them off and continued to play incredibly well, even in his bare feet. Um, but his, he started playing first professionally in 1908 and his rookie batting average of 408 still stands as the best rookie batting average of all time. Oh, I'd heard that. Yeah. It is still, Forget about that. it's only second overall, aside from rookies, second overall to Ty Cobb. He went into the outfield at first because they started him pitching and he broke a guy's arm with the ball. So they were like, okay. And this is, keep in mind, this is back in the in the mushy ball era. Yeah, the ball wasn't. The ball was not wound tight like it is like a rock now. It was softer then. You break a guy's arm with a mushy ball, that's, you're throwing pretty hard. This guy knew what he was doing, right? He gets traded in 1915 to the Chicago White Sox. He kills it with them. In 1917, they win the World Series against the New York Giants. Then 1918, World War One starts, um, and he goes to work in the shipyards. He's not, he, he's not in combat. And when the war is over, he gets right back so he comes back to baseball after world war uh, one 1919 they get all the way to the world series and the white Sox are facing off against the cincinnati reds and they lose what do you do well and then <laughs> shortly after they lose everyone's like well this is very strange and they and there's already been mumblings about no it just doesn't seem like no. they were playing as good as they possibly could apparently it was obvious to people who were learned apparently it was really obvious and you know what's so fascinating is that the players had actually started out cheating much better and then the gamblers just weren't convinced they were actively trying to lose so what happened was this the gambler's name is arnold rothstein oh yeah he, that, <laughs> your legendary figure and and referenced in the great gatsby too yeah this very guy. casually and the at least the guy who threw the world series what i'm sorry what a, a guy the a guy. guy through the World Series. That shows you how little the payers, players were being paid. And how much they wanted to stick it to the managers. Well, and that's another thing. If you watch the movie Eight Men Out, which is not a porn, by the way. <laughs> the John Sayles movie. I mean, a, you can find a porn version if you Yeah, you probably minutes. could. But they, they show what the climate was like back then. And it was, uh, it was such one-way contracts. They treated the players like shit. I mean, they did anyway. But the, it was yeah. especially egregious on the White Sox. There's a scene in that movie where... One of the pitchers, I forgot who it was, goes into the owner's office and he says, how come I'm not starting? I mean, it's like there's a month of games left. I'm not starting. He goes, well, you know, I just want to save your arm, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, is it because there's a clause in my contract saying that if I win 30 games, I get a bonus and I have 29 wins? No, no, no. It has nothing to do with that bullshit. Of course it did. Mm -hmm. And he deliberately held him out so he couldn't get that 30th win. So yeah. he couldn't make the money. And there's tons of stories There's like that. There's tons of stories like that. And they didn't even try that hard to hide it from the players because anytime a player brought it up, they would just be told, go fuck yourself. Yeah. And it, it blacklisted. Not even you're kicked off the team. No owner in baseball will ever hire you again. And this guy's name, by the way, is Charles Comiskey. If you want to know the guy to 
Yeah, oh, yeah. Comiskey was the owner. Yeah. And that was why when this gambler, um, Arnold Rothstein, gets these guys in the room and basically makes the pitch, it was received with varying degrees of interest. Some of them were like, fuck yeah, for the money, because I want to screw over the owner, because I like, this sounds great to me. It doesn't bother my moral code at all. Near the end of my career, what are they going to do? Blacklist me? I'm done anyway. Exactly. And some who were like, yeah, I like the idea, but I can't. I won't be able to go to sleep at night. I'm kind of a good guy. But nobody snitched because of how much they hated the fucking owner. So there was no reason (laughs) for them to stop this if they were just going to choose not to participate in it, let it go. The problem, as I said, is they didn't play well enough to convince the fans they were trying to win. They didn't play badly enough to convince the gamblers that they were trying to lose. It's something you don't consider when you go to throw a game. (laughs) I mean, this stuff, now you're already knee deep. You can't just back out. Yeah. And that's why like they, and the gamblers started to threaten them and threaten their families. Mm -hmm. So then they would really super look like they were trying to lose, which would make the fans and the people watching go fucking crazy. Yeah, And then they would stop getting paid. The gamblers stopped paying them. So then they started playing really well to stick it to the gamblers. It was very... It was a very back and forth series because of that. It was all very, very confusing. In in any event, the investigation is launched very quickly after the series is over. And a grand jury comes together and it's like eight players and five gamblers. And at the end of the day, all the players are acquitted. And which is not the same as being found innocent, but they're acquitted of being, you know, charged with these huge felony, whatever, fraud. However, the new commissioner of baseball. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Can you think of a better name? Yeah, just it sounds like something out of some novel, you know, some dude who comes out of a forest who just chops your head off or something. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And as a woman who has named a child, you think, how are they going to walk into a room? You know, my daughter is Beatrice Washington Melby. Ooh. I know. Kick ass. Mm-hmm. Right? Kennesaw Mountain Landis. You're like, listen up. <laughs> who, who gives their kid the middle name Mountain? Well, I guess Kennesaw Mountain was oh. a place that was yes. his family. But it is very, it's a bold move. But Kennesaw, I get. Hi, I'm Ken. Short for Kenneth? No, Kennesaw. Kennesaw. They were going to create a commission. They already knew this gambling thing is going to fuck up baseball. We've, we've got a problem here. we got to sort this out. And so... They're like, we, what we need to do is get like a Supreme Court for baseball. So let's just set up like the, a, a large commission of people. And Kennesaw Mountain Landis was like, that sounds fantastic. That's a great idea, except fuck a commission. It's all me. I'll be the commissioner. Uh, how's that sound? Kennesaw Mountain Landis delivered. Yeah. And even though all eight of these baseball players were acquitted by a grand jury, he says, quote, regardless of verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball. And girl, he wasn't fucking around. That was the end of their careers right there. All of them. A day after they were acquitted. If they were heard about it, literally, there were men who never attended a meeting and never took any money. But he simply knew they knew. And he blacklisted them from Major League Baseball for the rest of their careers. But here's what's interesting. We don't hear about those guys. Why do we focus on Shoeless Joe? Here's, Here's among the reasons why. One is that origin story I already told you. I want you to think about that. You're six in a factory you cannot read or write, and you not only find a thing that you do really, really well. You found a thing that you do really well, and everybody loves you for it. It will pay you. You're not only really good at it, you might be the best in the entire world at it. And then poof. Yeah. 
And it's made sadder by the fact that there is no evidence that Shoeless Joe participated in this scheme in any way. He definitely was never in any of those meetings. No gambler and no player ever put Shoeless Joe in a room with them. He did sign a confession. This illiterate man who couldn't write his own name signed a confession. So what did he say? What did he write? Who knows? But he played beautifully. In every game of that series that he performed, there was no evidence that he did anything less than his best, and his best was his best. And at the games they lost, he played his best in the games that they lost. He did get $5,000. See, there's there's the rub. That's the rub. He got five grand, but that money apparently was thrown at him by a teammate in a hotel room. Even Even just the money itself is questionable. The sad sack, he tried to get his job back. There was no way. He played under um, different names in minor league teams, but the minor league, they're not going to make the money. And gonna, once they yeah. found out it was him, which didn't take long, they, you know, they wouldn't be associated with him. They didn't want to take the ire of Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And then um, one day, uh, he, he and his wife are running a chain of liquor stores and bodegas, and he's sort of on the, you know, behind the counter trying to be obscure. Yeah. And a sports writer comes in with Ty Cobb, an old friend of his. Mm-hmm. And the bit, I'm sure, was just a, like, let's see what happens in here if these two friends, you know, recognize each other or whatever. And Ty Cobb buys some things, checks out, and is about to leave because no, he didn't say anything. And he stops and he goes, Joe, don't you recognize me? And he says, I know who you are, Ty. I wasn't sure if you wanted me to. Yeah. yeah. Sad. It's really sad. He never had any kids, and he dies of a heart attack. At 64. Yeah. He was in the audience of the Ed Sullivan show oh. in the 50s. And somebody just, previous for, from the World Series, uh, please stand up, Joe Jackson. I think by then, people had kind of forgiven mm-hmm. him a mm-hmm. generation later, yeah. if people even knew who he was. And then he died not long after that. Yeah. But that is really sad. It's sad. It's, and it's so tragic. And it's tragic. And it's also like, fuck you, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. That's you know the other I mean? thing. It's, it's you know... It, Especially the story with Ty Cobb, because Ty Cobb was one of the worst humans who ever played baseball. He was a raging racist Mm -hmm. and violently abusive. He just kept driving off his wives. But that is not the problem for baseball. Baseball was under no threat from having a player that beat his wife. Baseball is under threat if the fans think they are wearing the player's number that is not playing for them. Mm -hmm. It was was so... and, And then at the same time, as a lover of baseball... We couldn't have that cheat. Like it, no. it's so devastating for what it did to these individual players, but it had to be done. It, you, there would not have been the survival of this game if we had not truly believed that we were watching a straight game. You know, and the, and it had to be this brutal for it to happen. Yeah, but poor yeah. Shoeless Joe. I mean, I'd build a field for him. <laughs> it is. It's too bad, but I, you know, I I I'd like a story like this to address the problem at its root. Why are you treating players so shitty that they're willing to be corrupted so easily? Sure, but I mean, and that's but the argument goes so many ways. Like even in this same time period, frankly, the question was, what is the dollar amount that you have to pay someone to expect them to be good, right? Cops, for example, we started to realize that if we don't pay the police enough. The, under the, the prohibition, right, the gamblers and the bootleggers will simply make up the missing salary for those cops. And the, and so we then look back on it and go, well, the cops were corrupt, but can you blame them? They were starving and they weren't getting paid enough. So where is the line and what is the dollar amount between just a guy trying to feed his family and somebody just taking a bribe and being a liar? 
And we, that line moves around. It moves yeah. around for us depending on who the individual was, what their job was, who they took the money from, what they took the money for. But I do think that we all agree that if somebody is being truly underpaid and if someone is being truly uh, abused in their job, real or perceived, that they are ripe for corruption. Oh, yeah. Because a gambler, a really bad guy, can chew a cigar in your face and be like, I want to help you out. <laughs> yeah, and Rothstein was, was pretty wicked. He yeah. was pretty shrewd. You could go to a hotel and there would be a guy on a phone or something phoning in what's going on to anybody who could sit in the room and listen. And this, the, the sign was, if the pitcher was in on the fix, he would hit the first batter. And there's a scene in Eight Men Out anyway where Rothstein is sitting there in this hotel room or this lobby or whatever listening to the game and the first batter gets hit and he gets up and leaves. It's like, okay. I got game two. Got it. You know, and he's Oof. just, or whatever. Yeah. And you can go place his bet. Yeah. Well, he already had his bet placed. Sure. I'm sure. But he's just, he's got, he's got to make sure. Okay. Game two is in the bag. Good. And, and they were doing this. They weren't just doing it with baseball. These same individuals were doing it with the stock market and with horse racing and with every, every other thing that they could possibly influence and get inside information on. And it took various decades to, with varying degrees of success to weed out you know and they they, they still struggle with it. i mean that's of the course. big argument nowadays with college sports sure pay college athletes they won't be corrupted there's a there was a great story about the uh, about boston college in the late 70s early 80s and the point shaving scandal of that mm. and these guys aren't getting paid and you know boston mob yeah. just go hey come here i want to help you out yeah, you know totally. you want 500 bucks it's, yeah. it's, it's, no no you still win the game but yeah. you don't win by six you win by two yeah. so we can get a bet that's down right. but that's, come on you See, could do and that this, and this kind of money too it's so tricky because they say exactly right the, the one side says, we pay these college athletes money, then they can't be bribed and corrupted. On the other hand, you say, if you pay them so much money, they have no actual freedom to pursue any other interest. I mean, if these are college athletes. How do they accurately predict how their lives are going to go if this professional thing ever ends? You know, and then they go, exactly. If they don't pursue it professionally, now they've saved up a little money from their... I mean, mm -hmm. what is... What is a dollar amount and how is it going to motivate a person is, I think, akin to astrology in terms of who can actually predict. I've given you all this money. You now owe me a favor. I've given you all this money. You're now free to do whatever you want. That depends on you and me and all of these other factors yeah. that are going to come in. Oh, play. yeah. It's so messy. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Babe Ruth, mm. Jackie Robinson. Oh, yeah. And so much more. Hey there, folks. Wisconsin Drunken History Podcast is your weekly dose of the Dairy State. All things Wisco with your hosts, Eric. And I'm Russ. Be sure to tune in each week to learn more about the state we call home. We feature Wisconsin history, music, culture, and of course, beer. Before we slide into home with Joe Dungan, a humble-ish request to show us some love in all the ways that podcasts love love. Reviews, baby. Ratings, subscriptions, shares. Tell your friends. Mm, I mean, it really gets our algorithms hot when you... Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow Joe, Nungan, I have a question for you. Certainly. What is your favorite baseball movie? Oh, gosh. You know, I've never thought about it. Um, I remember liking The Natural. I thought that was very good. Um, I'm, I'm going to forget something. On the drive home, I'm going to go, oh, wait, oh. edit this in. Do you want me to give you some lists you can yeah, jump in? Yeah, if you have. Um, I got uh, League of Their Own, 
Oh yeah, that was a Field great of dreams. one. The Sandlot. Yeah, I never saw the Sandlot. Bad News Bears. Oh, there you go. That's it. Is that the one? That's it. Bad News Bears is my favorite baseball movie. <laughs> I that one came to me too as I was making my list, and I was like, I cannot leave out Bad News Bears. What about Major League? You have never seen the Major League series. What? I haven't. Oh, those are. I probably fun. should. I, Bad Bad News Bears is my favorite though. I mean, for a lot of reasons. Number one, casting Walter Matthau opposite children is already a genius move. <laughs> and number two, it might have been. The first movie that ever showed kids at their rotten normalcy. Yeah. Because when kids are left alone, they're little pricks. They're little pricks. And it showed that. And they the were shitty to each other. And the, the, the you know, the, the what baseball as a uh, community builder is. It's just this magnet for all sorts of different kinds of people. And, and right? the coaches, you know, yeah, I played Little League as a kid, not much, but I, and I, I umpired briefly. Ooh. Oh, that's you a, were an ump? It's a brutal job. You were an ump for an, Little League? I was an ump for Little League one a very brief period in college, and I quit. I'm like, I can't do this. Did they kick dirt on you and treat you like garbage? Mm, yeah. They didn't kick dirt on me, but it's like some games are just harder than others. First of all, doing that job is incredibly hard. It's very easy on television, but sure. it's very hard. And, and standing behind a catcher is oddly a terrible place to call balls and strikes. Oh, that's it's why really they're hard. dressed up like a fire hydrant. Well, it's not just the protection, but it's you can't see it that well. You oh. really can't. It's yeah. so strange. You're hovering. I'm hovering right over this catcher. And I just feel like a perv just standing <laughs> over this 12-year-old, like, like breathing on his ear. Have there ever been any i didn't see any of this in my research has there ever been a big cheating scandal involving umpires in not to my knowledge i know there were some bad umpires there's a guy right now who's a professional umpire named angel hernandez that everybody hates because now with technology the way it is you can electronically call balls and strikes i mean yeah. it's not official but you can see it afterwards So, do you think that we will ever do away with an umpire if not we know that we it's sort of it's possible because they're, they're or they, already. Or they would advise they would be secondary to the technology yeah. instead of. Yeah, it's already possible. I mean, first look at instant replay. Sure. They were already second quest. I mean, the old days, if an umpire got a call wrong, well, that was that. You know, yeah. you, just, you can scream all you want. Now there's instant replay and they can reverse their own calls. Yeah. I think umpires with integrity are going, you know, let's get the game, let's get the call right. Yeah. And if you have to, you know, go back and watch the video, I'm human. I get a call wrong once in a while. Sure. So give them points for that. I don't know if it'll entirely go away. Maybe maybe it will. I mean, if you look at like wiffle ball championships, there is no umpire for the strike zone. You have to hit a box. And There's who like can a... look away from the wiffle oh, ball championship? Oh, 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 oh. Have you ever seen a good wiffle ball pitcher? I've never seen. I don't know if I could have seen any kind of oh, wiffle ball pitcher. Sell me on wiffle ball because I was okay. Of... I remember being okay at that. It Well, it's the way they can pitch now because if you can throw like a good knuckleball with a wiffle ball, it can move four times on the way up there. I didn't know. Okay, oh. this is how bad I was. I've only ever hit a wiffle ball off a stand. So I didn't even know you pitched. Oh yeah. In with oh yeah. Oh yeah. But if you can, if you can throw it right, like a knuckleball, you the idea with a knuckleball, and they call it that because your knuckles are sticking out because you don't yeah. grip it like a baseball typically. You push it off with your fingertips, and the idea is to push it off with your fingertips with no spin, because then it will move very erratically on the way there. Now imagine that with this little plastic ball that weighs half an ounce, has a bunch of holes in it. Oh. It zigzags. I've seen it. It's It looks like special effects. Fun. Like a really good wiffle ball pitcher. It's, yeah. You're, it's unhittable. I'd go to see a wiffle oh, ball game. Oh, it's stunning. You're Where just, do they play wiffle ball around here? I don't I, I don't know. I'm sure it happens here and there. but I'm going to look that up. Yeah. I'm going to find me a wiffle ball game. What a 
my favorite baseball movies of all time is The Sandlot. It's got that youthful, team, goofy, James Earl Jones is in it. He's in all the good <laughs> baseball movies. Um, but they talk about the Bambino and Babe Ruth. And part of the plot line of, of the Sandlot is just the adoration that is given to the man Babe Ruth. And and I don't I don't think I could have told the history of baseball without at least mentioning him. And, oh, and, absolutely not. But one of the things with Babe Ruth's origin, and one of the reasons why he sticks to this history so much and why we love him so much, in addition to how fucking good he was, is his origin, similar to Shoeless Joe Jackson, is the American story. It's the kid from nowhere, the kid with no dad. And in Babe Ruth's instance, he grew up in a boy's home in Baltimore. His parents put him there. He wasn't an orphan. No, he wasn't they an orphan. They couldn't control him. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's talk about yeah, bad parenting. Yeah. We're like, ah, fuck it. Let the yeah. city take over. Well, you know what? It's interesting you say they couldn't control him. He was abandoned. I mean, they were never around. It was part of it. I mean, they were both working. This right. is part of the deal with being poor. But, it, it, you know, he, it wasn't as if he had parents that had the ability to control him either. But there was one guy. You know, once he gets to this Baltimore boy's home, brother Matthias mm -hmm. Boutier, who legendarily introduces him to baseball, teaches him all the ins and outs, and he's so good. He's just from, the, you know, he was apparently a natural. He was okay. eight. When he was eight. He was playing with the 12 year olds. When he was 12, he was on the high school team. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently just had a, a natural knack for it. And, kept, and his first um, pro opportunities at the age of 19 for uh, Baltimore, wasn't it? Boston Red Sox. Oh, he played for an amateur team in Baltimore. First. That was his first, yeah, his first MLB. And he's 19. He goes into town to do his tryout for the Boston Red Sox. Apparently, he meets his wife, his mm -hmm. future wife, that day. Yeah. She's a waitress in, like, the restaurant across the street. And he starts off as a pitcher, and he's so fucking good as a pitcher. But he doesn't like it because you have to take days off. Yeah. as a, Even then, as a starting pitcher, there was a rotation. So mm -hmm. you didn't just play every day. But he, he did... He, I think for a time he played outfield in the they other days, They did put him too. in the outfield first. That was where he was for, yeah, the, the early because he wanted to keep working, right, mm -hmm. every day. Then World War I, 1918, his draft is deferred, and he works in a steel mill um, and plays baseball <laughs> for the mill. <laughs> um, and then uh, 1919, which, of course, is the year we already talked about, the year that the, that the White Sox throw the World Series, um, they realize that they're not going to clear the championships, so they let Babe Ruth hit. In 1919, he, the fuck he can hit. <laughs> Holy shit, he can hit. He home run, home. He is setting records, and the crowds love him. The crowds right away, that crack, that sound, the thing that sends you to your feet, and people start coming in record numbers to see him break records. And at the end of that season, with this incredible realization that this guy can hit and he can get crazy home runs, and the entire city of Boston is completely falling in love with him. <laughs> they of course sell him yes that is the lament of boston fans to this day to this day and even they, though the curse of the bambino they call it the curse of the bambino I, I i don't sucks it wasn't just a tragic tale of them not being able to win the world series it's the way they didn't win the world series because there were repeated instances where they came very close only to break their fans hearts well that's why it has to be a curse i mean it's not the curse of the bambino right. if you don't get your heart but broken my my theory is it's not so much the bambino as it is the fans hmm. the collective unconscious of people who are afraid hmm. of something bad happening because if you look at 1978 for hmm. example they had a meltdown they were ahead the yankees were the defending world champions and they started 1978 in total disarray because they were the yankees and they were just it was the bronx zoo as as people called it and the Red Sox had something like a 14-game lead, and that summer it completely evaporated. Just they flipped the script both teams, and it turned into a one-game playoff at the end of 1970. And then there's 1986, where they were up three games to two. They were one out away from winning in New York 
and then it all unraveled. Mm. And the Red, the Mets won that game, and they won Game and Seven. And your theory also. is that there is some invisible, universal tendril that is connected somehow to the beating hearts of the fans, yes. and the breath, and the expectation, yes. and the hope, and then the fear, and yes. then the guy who made the final play in order to lose Game Six was Bill Buckner, the mm. late Bill Buckner. He was a very good first baseman, and his career is forever stained with this unfortunate moment. Years later, someone unearthed an interview of him two weeks before that game. And he said, well, you know, obviously the big fear is to, you know, make the error at the end of a game that loses the game in the World Series. And that's what he did. Yeah. He put the energy out in the universe. Um, well, and, and this is, if I'm not mistaken, baseball players are uniquely superstitious. Oh, yeah. They, they seem like, they, like this theory coming from you, Joe, is not just like, you know, there is a real belief in and among the, the biggest players in baseball and forever that you know don't wash your socks and all this touching their bodies oh, and all yeah. the ocd stuff they got to do you know to to the, get their themselves a, right there's you a know? great book called the baseball codes which talks all about stuff like that like when it's okay to hit a batter and brush them back when it's the superstitions and all that stuff and the best one is there's a statue of a civil war general in chicago all the buses go by this this statue because it's near the hotels where the players stay and the theory goes that if you were on a hot streak you do not look at the balls of the horse when you're going by. Conversely, if you're on a slump, hey, Larry, you want to make your slump? You got to look at the balls. I got some balls for you to look at here. This horse. The horse is apparently with one leg up, and oh you can God. see the sure. the jewels of this horse oh right God. there. You know, I love this about this. I think that, that like, as we talk about what there is to love about baseball, we talked at the beginning, you love the math. You love the drama. You can love just sitting out and enjoying the game. You can love the technology. You can love the capitalism. You can love the whatever. And another thing is this, the mysticism of baseball. I don't think it's a coincidence. The Red Sox, when they finally won the World Series in 2004, it was on the road because they were away from their fans. Have you ever, though, been around a bunch of people from Boston and felt good? <laughs> Fair question. <laughs> the Red Sox, who had won five out of the first 15 World Series, didn't even go to the World Series again until 1946 mm -hmm. and didn't win the thing until 2004. Um, and to make matters worse, at least for the people who were around at the time that Babe Ruth left, um, when he gets to the Yankees, he fully blooms into mm -hmm. the, the rose that is Babe Ruth. I mean, he saves baseball. I want to remind you again that the 1919 World Series broke our hearts. And we are also sad for Joe Jackson. What the fuck is going on with baseball? And are we going to lose baseball? And am I ever going to love baseball again? Can I, fans are asking themselves, can I love baseball again? Can I walk into a stadium and not hate these fucking assholes? And will I be able to go and wonder if they're actually a bunch of cheats instead of the heroes to look up to? And I just don't know if I'm capable of the crack. What was that sound? <laughs> and it's Babe Ruth. And he's fat as fuck. Yeah. He's oh. dumpy. He looks fatter than you. You think to yourself, I can fucking do that. Yep. You watch Babe Ruth. And he not only is hitting these home runs, Joe, he hits the first ball out of the park since Shoeless Joe Jackson. Oh, really? I didn't know that. A literal, I mean, getting goosebumps right now. A literal coming back. People could, you know, and so the, the crowds come back. He sets a record. He breaks that record. He sets the record again. He breaks it again. Not only do people realize they can love baseball again. They love it. 
with a deepness and a fullness that they hadn't experienced before because they almost lost it, because she was almost gone. And he's helped by something you mentioned earlier, that new ball. Yes. The A.J. Reach Company brings us a brand new baseball, and we enter the live ball era. Mm -hmm. In that very first year, there are 180 more home runs than in the previous And that's when they realized, wait, home runs are more fun. Yeah, this makes that sound, every jump Yeah, it's a sound. The old home runs were, you know, the ball would just kind of roll into the weeds, you know, and you have to chase it down. This thing went flying. It defied physics. You've never seen anything travel 400 feet before. And you got to watch with your mouth open, you spill your popcorn. So exciting. And Babe Ruth is a brute. He's he's really good, but he drinks hard. Oh, and he, and he smokes never cigars. Gets, he smokes cigars. He lost $35,000 betting on horses in Havana. <laughs> he's womanizer. You oh, asked yeah, if they were... womanizer. Just he just he all alpha male just oh. just he's all id just Always. I want that. He... And he said and he'd say they, they he said in an interview. He said they can take my money, they can take baseball, they can take booze from me. But never women, they're just too much fun. <laughs> It sounds like something he would say. He said he punched an ump. He would accost fans if they treated him like shit. He heard something he didn't like from the fans. He'd climb up on a wall and call you a piece of shit. Oh yeah, he just he didn't so he didn't exciting. realize he, he could he could he didn't the idea of being elevated from that never entered his head. He was just all in the moment. And yeah, I had, my favorite line from Ken Burns' baseball about him was uh, he hired a guy to open his mail and throw away everything except checks and letters from broads. <laughs> Amen, babe. Yep. In 1930, he's the highest paid player um, ever. He's making $80,000 in baseball. And check this, $100,000 that year in vaudeville. Oh, really? This is 1930, which is the year the stock market crashes in 1929. I mean, everyone's rolling through a pile of dust and bones, except for Babe Ruth, who's just tits deep oh, yeah. and pussy and cash. <laughs> He's doing everything. And then, and what, and Babe Ruth, I mean, I know that we, you know, I could do a whole episode on Babe Ruth. Oh, I yeah. wish I could, but the one that gets the, again, the goosebumps on me is that called shot. Which is, there's still legends about whether or not it actually happened. It's true. Or... You know, I was reading about it and they, every now and again, they'd say he allegedly pointed to the blah, 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 blah. But the, the way it fills our hearts, the, what it did oh, for yeah. people in that 1932, it was the 1932 World Series. It was versus the Cubs and the Cubs previous manager was now managing the Yankees. And that just is enough for the Cubs fans to be a bunch of cunts. And they've been yelling at everybody since they got off the train, calling names, throwing lemons at Babe Ruth. And just generally it's bad feeling. Fuck yeah. these guys, right? And the pitcher is... Charlie Root. And interestingly enough, at this game, we're at the called shot game, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the then governor of New York and candidate for president, watched this game. Which I thought was very cool. So Babe Ruth drives up to the plate, and in, in the midst of all this abuse and lemon throwing, allegedly points out to the back wall in a way that indicates that's where my next fucking ball's gonna go. Oh, the audacity! Yeah. And uh, and he hit. And Ooh. then he does it. And then he fucking does it because you can't point like that with your big old dick hanging out and your cocky ass <laughs> smile and then miss the fucking thing like that. You know, I mean, not with any grace. And then the next game. This guy, Guy Bush, hits Babe Ruth with the ball. And the, this then instigates a rally on the Yankees, and they Yeah, they win. swept the series that year. And they win. And I think, I don't, I don't know if he'd called a shot or not. Why I not? Think, Why not? 
Well, you know, as the pitcher said, you know, if he had called a shot, I would have knocked him on his ass. Pitchers don't take kindly to that sort of thing. No, I think that's why it's so audacious to have done that, it. Like, can you believe this asshole? And everyone went, oh, that asshole. <laughs> ugh, ugh, can you believe that asshole? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it just, he can't lose. <laughs> this called shot happens in, in 1932. By 1934, two years later, this guy, his body hurts. That's a He's lot of 39. Yeah, to call that carcass around. It takes forever. He's not treating himself well. Um, and he really wants to manage. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, and I think it's exactly what I outlined before, he's a brute, he's a womanizer, he's a cigar tour. We may like that in a player that's hitting balls out of the park every night, but do we want this guy in the boardroom? Do we want this guy sitting behind the desk and talking to people's contracts? They, For whatever reason, they just didn't feel comfortable with it, and he never got the manager offer he wanted. The Yankees pretty much said, it's not going to happen. Forget it. And when he tried to look at other opportunities, actually, he did have some fairly serious offers, but he traveled around the world with his wife instead, went to Hawaii, went to the UK, tried cricket, hit the first time he tried cricket, Babe Ruth goes to the UK, tries cricket, this is like 1935, hits it so hard, he s destroys the bat. The bat just like <laughs> disintegrates in his hands. They're kind of stoked. And they, there's a very brief, who knows how uh, serious they discussed him playing cricket, for, right? I know. He's like, oh, it can be great. They're like, oh, yeah, you love it. You get $40 a week. Oh, and he was God. like, good day. Do I get uh, other no, women? No, no, are are yeah. English women just as good like, as oh, American women? Oh, no, they would never blow you with their mouths. Oh, forget Certainly it. Certainly not. No, no I'm, oh, I'm out of here. No, no, no. He does get um, cancer. Yeah. And they don't tell him he has cancer, which I think is interesting. There was actually an article I was reading, and they said he didn't know. And I thought, well, he knows there's something up. But they didn't call it cancer. And per perhaps he had requested, don't tell me what it is. Um, and he had written a book, ghostwritten, the Babe Ruth story, that was being made into a movie in 1948. Once they realized that Babe was, start was dying, they kind of hurried up this movie. And um, he saw the premiere in July on July 26th in 1948, they got him out of the hospital and he actually saw the premiere and he died uh, less than a month later, about three weeks later. He died in his sleep at the age of 53. Mm. And the people who saw this movie said it was, quote, the worst movie <laughs> ever made. I heard it was very cheesy. I did read. I saw. I, I tried to find some clips of it. They're hard to find. The poster looks bad. I'll tell you that. The poster looks bad. And the description was like, there's like a weird plot where like he saves people from a burning fire. I mean, it's very, it, it does sound I, I heard it was cheesy. I did hear one story. I don't know the details, but the actor who played him was a guy named William Bendix, who apparently years earlier was a bat boy for the Yankees. Oh. And actually, it got fired because he almost killed Babe Ruth one day. Huh? I forgot how. I don't know well, if he accidentally well, poisoned him or That what, movie but... actually killed him. I mean, he <laughs> saw your movie, and then he died three <laughs> weeks later. So maybe this was all like a long con yeah. <laughs> to get him done. Um, but they say, and you say he's the best. I mean, you look at the numbers, you think he's the best that ever was. And there is a guy playing right now on the LA Angels, Shohai Otani mm -hmm. from Japan. And yeah. he is a hitter and a pitcher. And there are many, many voices, very important voices in baseball that are saying this guy is not just the next Babe Ruth. He's better than Babe Ruth. We shall see. And perhaps no player has been more discussed than the next one that we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. Jackie Robinson. Yeah, not just a great ball player, but a great American. 1919 is the year Jackie Robinson is born. This is, of course, the year of the... World Series that was thrown by Shoeless Joe. It is the year that they first let Babe Ruth hit. Of course, you already know this. I, I, I cannot imagine any of my listeners have never heard of Jackie Robinson before, but he is the first black major league ball player. He, quote unquote, broke the color barrier in 1947 for the Dodgers. Mm -hmm. um, and there were, however, black 
baseball players, professional baseball players, before Jackie Robinson, it was a surprise to me to learn that at the very, very beginning, 1870, before this owners, managers versus players thing set up, there were professional black baseball players playing on integrated teams mm-hmm. across the United States. Moses Fleetwood Walker, mm-hmm. who um, was you know, making his money as a baseball player, um, and then the league, they just decided. It was a gentleman's agreement that came along. We're just not going to hire black players anymore. It causes too many problems. And it was, you know, name it. There were players that would not play with a black player. There are players that would not play against a team that included black player. There were the stadiums would would lock the doors and not let anyone in to see the game. There are fans that would hurl abuse. I mean, some of the some of the treatment is as egregious as the egregious treatment of black Americans in this country from the beginning. And it happened on and off the field. And the managers and the owners phrased it in this, of course, way that was just, it's causing too many problems. So to solve the problem, we're just going to kick all these black players off the teams and never hire any of them again. But as history has shown, these problems tend to fester. And it, it, you know, a few things happened. Number one, World War II ended. And if another thing in this country's history is whenever a war ends, black Americans demand civil rights because they just fought for this country and they come back and they're being treated the way they were before. They're like, uh, no, I kind of have a problem with this. I just risked my life for your country and now I'm back to Jim Crow. No, no I don't right. like this. And the other thing that happened is that Kennesaw Mountain Landis died. Right. The famous, he was a racist on top of his other qualities. And he died and he was replaced by a guy named Happy Chandler who was a happy guy. Happy Chandler, what and do you know? some reporter, I think it was a black reporter from one of the black newspapers, asked him, how would you feel about a black major league player? And he kind of said, eh, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. And everyone went, wait, wait, what? The, the year that, that Babe Ruth calls his shot, Jackie Robinson is 13 years old. He's being raised in Pasadena. He's got brothers. His brothers are in athletics. His, his older brother, Mac, in fact, got a silver medal in the 1936 Olympics. That'd be the Nazi Olympics when Jesse Owens wins four gold mm-hmm. medals. And they, they encouraged him to pursue sports, and they kind of kept him on the straight and narrow. During World War II, he's drafted. He is then assigned to the Black Panther Tank Battalion and is going to be deployed to World War II. He goes to a doctor's appointment to get an old basketball injury looked at on the way home from this doctor's appointment he gets on a segregated bus Mm -hmm. the driver asks him to get off the bus he says no the driver doesn't give him any grief but when they get to the stop where they're going he has called ahead and his the mps are there and there's authorities there and he is court-martialed he defends himself his defense is sturdy enough that he is acquitted stays in the military as a coach he coaches athletics and is ultimately honorably discharged in 1944. And that's that was part of the criteria for figuring out which Negro League player they were going to pick. It's a curiosity why they didn't go with this guy named Josh Gibson. Mm-hmm. Josh Gibson was statistically a better player than Jackie Robinson. And if they were just going for the best player, then why didn't they go for him? And the answer is this story. They they wanted the, the proper temperament. And they said, would you, how are you, there is going to be inevitable, painful, and incessant racism aimed at you and your family from the beginning to the end. Yeah. How I, do you feel about that? Yeah. And that's, how are you going to roll with that? There was that famous moment they recreated it in the movie 42 with Jackie with Bozeman mm. and uh, uh, Harrison Ford played Branch Rickey. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's good, you know, how do you feel about fighting? And Robinson immediately got his back up and he said, What do you think? I'm afraid to fight? He says, No, no, no. I want to see if you're 
uh, if you have the courage not to fight. Mm-hmm. And that's and then he gets to stop and go. Oh wait, yeah, really? He comes to the Dodgers. His first game is played on April eleventh, nineteen forty seven, at Ebbets Field. It is versus the Yankees. There are twenty four thousand fans there. Fourteen thousand of them are black, and there's already some painful experiences from players on his own team. Players, they're starting rumors. We're going to boycott. We're going to strike. We're not going to play. And one of the the Dodgers managers, Leo DeRocher, says, "Quote." I do not care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a fucking zebra. I'm the manager of this team, and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich. And if you cannot use the money, I'll see you all get traded. (laughs) Yeah. Did it put an end to the abuse that was leveled against Jackie Robinson? No. He got a seven-inch gash on his leg from uh, an opposing player named Eno Slaughter. Eno Slaughter is another uh, prick. Piece, piece of shit. Yeah. Um, in 1950, three years later, <laughs> he is the highest paid Dodger. He's making $35,000. He plays himself in the Jackie Robinson story, which I watched. It's not that bad. It's not that good. No. But have you ever seen a baseball player be better? Playing well, Jackie Robinson. No, <laughs> right. No, I mean, it was good. There were really lovely scenes, and he's not that bad. He's got, his voice is a little sweet. Yeah. He has kind of a, a sweet, uh, high-pitched voice that has always been the thing for film, always is the sound of your voice, but it's uh, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as the Babe Ruth story. <laughs> it didn't literally kill him. Um, and it got some good, it got some good press. But Branch Rickey, his buddy and advocate, and like the guy who went looking for him, gets squeezed out of the Dodgers by Walter O'Malley. It's, it's bad blood. Yeah, O'Malley is another example of behind every great fortune is a great crime. He was a prick. Oh, Walter O'Malley is ultimately the one who brings the Dodgers to L.A. and to do so just has to fuck a lot of people, yeah. a lot of people over. Um, but he's now in charge, and he calls Jackie Robinson Ricky's prima donna. And, you know, just Robinson knows this is not going to be nearly as much fun. But he is starting to um, advocate more, not only for his, himself, but he's active in civil rights. He's openly calling out hotels and restaurants that treat him and, and his and his family and his friends badly. Um, he stands up for himself and he stands up for others. And he's getting death threats and, and appears to change his behavior outwardly. Not at all. Um, in 1955... Ah, the Dodgers. Oh, there it was. There it was. At long last. At long last. The Brooklyn Dodgers finally won a World <sighs> Series. And the Brooklyn Dodgers were shit. They were like, for years, it was the joke team. They were so yeah. bad. They never they never had anything good. And the Yankees are always the best. They're yeah. always fighting for the best. They're one of the best. They're second best. And the Dodgers beat the fucking Yankees. Oh, mm-hmm. what a, I mean, what a fantastic. Robinson didn't play his best game. He was not like the star player of that game, but it doesn't matter. No, You're a Dodger when you finally the knocked Yankees. off the Yankees. And then in 1956, uh, they get to the World Series, but he strikes out, and they the and then the, and then it looks like okay, the Dodgers are going to sell Jackie Robinson to the Giants. Gas. The what? No, not don't the say Giants. it again. Don't say it. not the Giants. Not, come on. So so. The Yankees would have been painful, but at least you get like, yeah, right, because these are the competitive. The, you're the best, and you think I'm the best, and you think I want to be the best. No, the Giants, the arch enemy. How dare you? Yeah. And um, but jokes on them because secretly, Jackie Robinson had arranged to quit, cancel his contract, and go work for 
chock full of nuts, wasn't it? Can you it? believe it? Chock full of he nuts. He worked for chock full of nuts coffee. The coffee company. He becomes an executive for chock full of nuts. And oh, even better, there was this parting uh, kick in the shins too, because he had already arranged for a big release with Chuck Full of Nuts, so that when his retirement and like leaving was announced, it didn't come through, and the MLB sources didn't get to break the story. Like, ah, you know, screw you. Good for him. Yeah, and he and he made his money and lived his life, and um, unfortunately, it wasn't a long life. His heart disease and diabetes, and dies of a heart attack in 1972. At the age of 53, many of his teammates are pallbearers. Jesse Jackson gives his eulogy. Mm. And one year later in 1957, Wally O'Malley takes the Dodgers out of New York and to Los Angeles. A few things about that. Number one, why Ricky chose, uh, or the Dodgers chose to break the color barrier. Yes, it's about money because they're thinking cynically, you know, if we we get the first black player, every black person with a radio is going to be a fan of the Dodgers, Mm -hmm. you know. But at the same time, all the owners wanted money. Mm-hmm. Did they do it? Mm-hmm. No. So you got there's a certain both things are going on. Yes, sure. it's greed, but it's also a sense of decency. And yeah. Ricky, you know, the stories about Ricky are that he was actually a decent guy. And this is yet another example of of why baseball is the history of America. Why you can take labor relations, race, capitalism, technology, you can take it all and mm-hmm. find your place in which baseball has woven itself through it. It's so, so fast. Oh, it's stunning. And it's just endless. Well, Joe Dungan, you have been a wonderful guest. I am so grateful that you came and I'm so grateful that you um, set my my health target mm-hmm. on baseball because it was a true delight. Oh, there's there's more. There's more. <laughs> Wait, Will there's, you come back? Oh, yeah. And we'll do the like 57 to present you got it. version of the baseball yeah. history. Oh, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> Joe Duncan, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to my guest, Joe Duncan. Go follow him and and watch out for him out there on all those wild wiffle ball courts. Um, We have a new episode every two weeks and up next, Pompeii, the ancient Mediterranean city annihilated by a volcano in 78 AD. And my guest is my real life hilf, my husband, Andrew Melby, with whom I just visited the historic site. It was hot as fuck, and there was a snack shop in the middle, and cats, real cats everywhere. I have so much to tell you, and I can't wait for you to hear it. In the meantime, our theme song was composed and performed by Cat Perkins and Eric Warner, and a reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, the documentaries, the articles that I reference in the summary of this episode, or by emailing us, hilfpodcast at gmail.com, or messaging us on social media at Hilf Podcast. This has been Hilf History. I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming. Fuck. <laughs>